This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. If any of you uh, came uh, here this evening with the idea of hearing how well we're all doing in America these days, you might want to leave now, because what Chris Hedges provides in his searing new book, America, the Farewell Tour, uh, is a pretty bleak account of the mess that we're in. Just in the first few pages, Chris notes that civilizations over the past 6,000 years have the habit of eventually squandering their futures through acts of colossal stupidity and hubris. Then he adds... We are not an exception. We are entering this final phase of civilization. Chris, an experienced journalist, goes on to detail the evidence of decline and and growing despair. In the opioid crisis, increases in gambling, the prevalence of pornography, the spread of magical thinking, the resurgence of hate groups, the explosion of xenophobia, and so on. He examines these developments, sees the rise of Donald Trump and his authoritarian populism as an outgrowth and natural exploitation of these trends and issues a passionate call to action to reverse this disintegration while there's still time. Anyone familiar with Chris's extensive writing over the years won't be surprised by the sharpness and forcefulness of his critique, the detail and broad scope of his reporting, and the many scholarly references woven into the book. For the first two decades or so of Chris's professional life, he reported overseas as a correspondent covering conflicts in Central America, the Middle East, and the former Yugoslavia. Much of that period he spent with the New York Times, and he was part of the team of Times reporters who in 2002 won the Pulitzer for explanatory reporting for their stories before and after the 9-11 attacks, profiling the global terrorism network and the threats it posed. For the past decade, Chris has been a columnist for the progressive news and commentary website TruthDig, and he hosts the show On Contact on RT America. A graduate of Harvard Divinity School, Chris was ordained a minister in the Presbyterian Church four years ago. He's also taught at Princeton and several other universities and conducts college credit courses in the New Jersey prison system. Chris has spoken here uh, several times before, and I'm sure we're in for a very spirited and provocative discussion. So please join me in welcoming him back. Thank you. Every book that I've written has a kind of template and, uh, for instance, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, which I did with the great cartoonist Joe Sacco, one of the finest journalists in America. And if you have not read Footnotes in Gaza, uh, which he spent six years on, uh, it's a masterpiece on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, I knew it was going to be a rough one to go through, and I got up. I actually got up Easter morning before everyone in my house was awake so that it would be still and quiet Uh, And that book just reduced me to tears. That book was really modeled on Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, the great work by James Agee and the photographs by Walker Evans. This book, my kind of model was Emile Durkheim's great study of suicide at the end of the 19th century in France, where Durkheim, who was an amazing sociologist, uh, very much like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, where he would go out. He, he He didn't remain trapped in his... Uh, particular academic enclave, but really went out and listened and interviewed, which is, of course, what made Du Bois such a remarkable and important 
uh, presence uh, and sociologist within the United States writing about African-American communities. And he came to the conclusion, this is where we get the term anomie, that uh, societies that disintegrate, that societies in decay, communities in decay, create diseases of despair. That's not his term, but that's his idea. Pathologies that are expressed, that rise up from failed states. And those would be uh, self-loathing, a sense of a lack of self-worth, alienation, all, as Durkheim says, that comes when you no longer have faith or belief in the established order, the established ideology, and established institutions. And those kinds of pathologies are expressed in very self-destructive activities, gambling, hate crimes, sexual sadism, which is what pornography is, uh, and uh, although I went to the extreme. In my book, Empire of Illusion, I had written about the porn industry, but for this book, I went to kink.com. Hopefully none of you know what it is. <laughs> I didn't know what it is. Derek Jensen had to tell me what it was. So they bought the ar old National Guard armory in uh, San Francisco and run the largest BDSM operation in the world, which is live-streamed. Um, look, tor it is torture. It is clearly, I mean, women are waterboarded and stuff. And then people will stream in and say what they want done to the women. I mean, just appalling. But anyway, I went to these classes, which were held in the basement of the armory for doms, dominate, what do they call them? People who are dominant. People who, like, they're dweeby guys who dress in black. <laughs> and me, sitting in the basement. I was not dressed in black. And I actually wrote the gambling chapter out of the Trump Taj Mahal before I even knew Trump was even going to announce, which was inappropriate decay. I mean, there was mice all over the place. And the lights were burned out and people were shooting up in the elevators. And uh, most of the Taj Mahal was mothballed. It's a nice picture of what's going to happen to the rest of the country if he <laughs> remains in power. And then... I was with these white hate groups, uh, Knights of the Alt-Right, Proud Boys, which, of course, hate groups are a product of a diseased society, uh, the three percenters. I was actually at one point at night around a bonfire with these guys in upstate New York, and I, uh, of course, living in mortal fear that someone there would Google me. And at a, I was with my research assistant, who was terrified, quite justifiably so. And at one point, across the bonfire in the dusk, we saw two or three of these guys pointing at me. That's when, like, we we got out, like, as fast as we. She actually, when we got to the car, she was so frightened she she like crawled down to the floor. And their counterpart on the left, um, and I've been very critical, as some of you may know, of the Black Bloc and Antifa for much the same reason. I was in these deindustrialized pockets. Uh, Anderson, Indiana. And one of the things I like about as a writer, I, I, I enjoy reporting. I, I like it because it, when I go out, it often shatters my own assumptions about what is happening. Um, and it keeps me intellectually honest. So sometimes, you know, I can go into a subject and think that I have a great body of knowledge. I wrote a book on the Christian right, which has become, unfortunately, I think, uh, fairly relevant to our particular political situation. It's called American Fascists, the Christian Right, and the War on America. I was trying to reach out to them. And, um, <laughs> but I come out of the liberal church. My father was a Presbyterian minister. Of course, as you heard, I'm a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. But I didn't really know, know much about the Christian Right. And I went in there with all sorts of assumptions, and I would say even stereotypes about the kinds of people who embrace this form of fundamentalism, which I think is is heretical. It's Christian heresy. But I couldn't 
listen to these stories of dislocation and pain, sexual, domestic abuse, struggles with addictions, evictions, bankruptcies, without having it break my heart. And it rewrote, I rewrote the whole book. The first chapter is called Despair. And it drove home to me what despair does. And the great study of the one of the great studies of the rise of fascism by Fritz Stern is called The Politics of Cultural Despair. Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism holds up despair. Again, I think going back to Durkheim, that sense of worthlessness, that sense, and it, and it propels people into a kind of magical thinking. Uh, I also in the book was with preppers and survivalists in Utah. Um, who have a little food in their bunker and a lot of ammunition. But I think that magical thinking, what anthropologists call it crisis cults, is a natural response to people who are just so overwhelmed by reality that they can't cope. And when I was in Anderson, so Anderson, Indiana, used to have most of the big GM plants. And then uh, Clinton gave the gift of NAFTA to the American working class, and GM hightailed it down to Monterey, Mexico, where they pay workers without any benefits or job security $3 an hour. Uh, so uh, your union salary of 25 and if you were a senior level overtime, you know, you could be making $50 an hour. You had benefits. Uh, you had a pension plan. Uh, you, you were medically covered. You, had, you were in the UAW. You had job security. It's all vanished. And... Uh, Anderson went into the kind of tailspin that many deindustrialized pockets of the United States went into with all of the attendant problems, including, of course, the rise of a casino, like this whole idea of economic development through gambling. Um, I, I watched that work try to work in Yugoslavia, and it, it, it doesn't come to a good end. The idea that you're going to fill state revenue shortfalls with gambling, I mean, so... What was fascinating about Anderson is that uh, most of these old UAW workers voted for Bernie Sanders. But when the general election came around, they voted for Trump because they weren't going to vote for Clinton after NAFTA. They were acutely aware and perhaps their anger was even greater at the Democratic Party than the Republican Party because it was the Democratic Party that had betrayed them, that had pretended to fight for their interests and their concerns that continued to use the feel your pain language of traditional liberalism, but it thrust a knife in their back. And that betrayal is very dangerous. It is, you know, Baldwin, when James Baldwin writes about, uh, in, in one of his essays, he writes about why uh, he thinks African-American middle-aged men don't have a midlife crisis the way white middle-aged men do. He said, because African-American men are not prone to believe in the American dream, given the, uh, the forms of oppression that mutate and are protean and exist throughout our, have exist and, and have always existed throughout American history. And I think that there's a certain wisdom in that. Uh, the, of course, the highest, and I write about suicide, the highest percentage of people who commit suicide in this country, which is an epidemic, are middle-aged white men. People who realized uh, that, in fact, the society has, there is no place for them. They, they uh, that, that the American, the quote-unquote American dream was a lie. And so what's happened, and, and it's been a process over a few decades, is that we have undergone what uh, John Ralston Saul calls a coup d'etat in slow motion, 
a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion. Sheldon Wolin, if you don't know Sheldon Wolin, please read him. Uh, we just lost him a couple years ago. I did a three-hour interview with him right before he died on YouTube, um, which was very humbling. I had reread all his books. I had pages of notes. Um, there wasn't – you can watch it. It's it's remarkable intellectual pyrotechnics. Um, there was just nothing that I couldn't throw at that guy. Um, it was really quite spectacular. We had not been interviewed in over a decade. It was the last interview he gave. Uh, but his book, uh, Democracy Incorporated, and then his masterpiece, Politics and Vision, uh, are kind of seminal works. And Politics and Vision is often considered by political scientists as one of the great uh, political books on political philosophy produced in America in the 20th century. And I think that's not hyperbolic. Wolin calls the system inverted totalitarianism in that he means that, uh, like the late Roman Republic, you still have the facade. You have the iconography, the language, the institutions of an open society, of a democratic state. But internally, corporations have seized all of the levers of power to render the citizen impotent. And of course, what that does, anytime a cabal seizes power, whether it's monarchical communist, fascist, corporate, is and redirects all of the systems of government and institutions towards their own empowerment and enrichment, then uh, you, you, you get a form of political paralysis. The political system seizes up. It, it no longer responds to the rights and legitimate grievances of the citizenry, and in fact, extracts more and more and more out of a population that is already under deep distress. And of course, that is what has happened. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to get out um, to places like Indiana or I write out of Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the city went bankrupt or almost went bankrupt and they had to sell off all of their utilities, their sewer system. This is not uncommon throughout deindustrialized centers in the United States. And of course, corporations buy it up and then jack up the prices. And these are, I think the, I for, it's in the book, but I can't remember the average per capita income per family is like $40,000 a year or something in Scranton. Not much. And uh, and so you're extracting more and more and more from a population that has less and less and less. And that is the process. I mean, Trump, Trump, sorry, Trump has, of course, turbocharged the kleptocracy, uh, but it was there before he came in. And so w what we're facing and what we're producing uh, and, and what's ahead of us is the inevitable collapse of the American empire, all of the warning signs that have brought down other empires throughout history are f flashing red within the American empire. And I'll just tick a few of those off. One is the political paralysis, the inability of the system to address the injustices um, the economic deprivation, the loss of rights of the population, and in fact, to make it worse. Um, the other, of course, is something that even Bernie Sanders doesn't like to talk about, and that is the bloated militarism and imperialism um, that is hollowing the country out from the inside. So you have now 17 years of warfare in the Middle East. I, I, there's a term, uh, I don't know if people have read, Alfred McCoy wrote a good book, I think it's called This American Century. He's a great historian. But he, he talks about 
what he calls micro-militarism. It's a term that historians use. And what it is is that uh, late empires inevitably overreach. They carry out acts of military folly in an effort to recapture a lost power. For instance, the in the Athenian Empire, they invade Sicily. Their entire fleet is sunk. Thousands of soldiers are killed, and uh, the empire unravels. There are revolts throughout the empire. Or you look at the slow decline of the British Empire, which really began at the end of World War I, but culminated in 1956 when uh, Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal and the British invade, attempt to invade, and um, and going back to Sacco's book, the Israelis take over Gaza for 100 days and carry out wholesale massacres, which is what his book is about, Footnotes in Gaza. And they have, and Eisenhower and, uh, w will not support them, largely because he won't give them credit to carry out this act of military adventurism, and they retreat in humiliation. And then what happens is the pound sterling uh, is dropped as the world's reserve currency. And that, of course, is the death blow of the American empire, which is going to happen one day. Once the dollar is no longer the reserve currency, the, the economy seizes up. Uh, imports become phenomenally expensive. We, we can't live off of the sale of treasury bonds and because nobody wants them. Um, and you can look at what happened to the British economy in the 50s if you want to know what's coming. And so y you have a situation where you're squeezing your population harder and harder and harder uh, for less and less and less. Uh, and uh, and this is a characteristic with Joseph Tainer writes about it in his great study, The Collapse of Complex Societies, where he looks at, I think it's 24 different civilizations, but he talks about that final moment when the elites retreat to the equivalent of the Forbidden City or Versailles, or in our country, it's what a writer in The New Yorker called Richistan, um, which means you fly on private jets and you never have any contact at all with anybody who doesn't make a few million dollars a year. And so they have no connection with the reality and they squeeze. In this case, of course, it's through debt peonage. You know, they've borrowed all these banks, all Goldman Sachs, which is a criminal organization. Um, Goldman Sachs, all of these corporations were able to borrow from the Fed trillions of dollars. I mean, there's various numbers, four or seven and at virtually 0% interest, but it does have to be paid back. And so how's it paid back? It's extracted from us. Um, that's $1.4 trillion in student debt. That is, you're late on your credit card, it's 28%. Um, that is, you know, even if you have health insurance, as anyone who has it can tell you, the costs keep rising astronomically. Um, in terms of copay, what they don't cover, what the pharmaceutical industry, which can jack up our, you know, the the myelin, but that's just one of many examples in the in the EpiPen. So you're extracting more and more from a population, and how do you how do you deal with this kind of calcification or failed democracy? And that is that at the same time you strip citizens of their rights. You reinterpret constitutional rights. You overturn them by judicial fiat. So, for instance, with Citizens United, which allows the Koch brothers to control uh, with dark money uh, or Sheldon Adelson, these figures uh, are elections. It becomes the right to petition the government or a form of free speech. This is, this is how Citizens United is justified. Um, Edward Snowden exposes the fact that we are the most surveilled, watched, monitored, eavesdropped 
population in human history. And I covered the Stasi state in East Germany. And of course, nothing is done to restore the constitutional right of privacy. And if you wonder why it's so dangerous that they have everything on every one of us, including medical records, you go back to Hannah Arendt's great book, Origins of Totalitarianism, and she writes about how despotic governments take information or have files, information on every citizen, so that at the moment that they seek to criminalize that person or a group, they can twist whatever information they have to justify it as a crime. We also have, courtesy of Barack Obama's uh, signing of the 2011 National Defense Authorization Act, Section 1021, which overturns the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which had before prohibited the military from acting as a domestic police force. And as some of you may know, I sued Obama in federal court and to the chagrin of the national security state won. And uh, the, the very courageous judge, Catherine Forrest, ruled in our favor and issued a temporary injunction. And uh, I, within hours of that injunction, lawyers from the NSA and had flown up uh, and demanded in the name of national security that she reinstate this act. Now, this act allows the military to seize U.S. citizens, strip them of due process, and hold them indefinitely in military facilities. And in her opinion, which is worth reading, uh, she said this opens the path for the government to criminalize an entire group of people. And she cites the 110,000 Japanese Americans who were interned in World War II. You militarize police forces um, and you create legal and physical mechanisms among demoni the demonized segments of your population so that at a moment that the country becomes restive, um, with a flick of a switch, um, you can impose martial law or tyranny. So in marginal communities, you have already reigns of terror. 94% uh, of the people in our prison system never get a jury trial. They're forced to plea out. And I have taught in prison for 10 years, and my, the students I have with the longest sentences invariably went to trial, did not commit the crime for which they are charged, went to trial, though many people who are forced to plead guilty didn't commit the crime, and nobody deserves Almost no one in the system deserves the length of sentences or the conditions they're held under. And they get the longest sentences because it has is a message sent to everyone else, which is basically don't try this. I mean, they won't peel off the uh, the charges. And that's how a plea works. They stack all sorts of charges. Even they know you didn't do it. I mean, they love to put kidnapping on no matter what you did because it's 25 years. So, And it will go back to Aaron. So Arendt writes about, she herself uh, is expelled from Germany, stripped of her German citizenship, finds herself in France, and she writes about the plight of the stateless. And she said, once you create a mechanism within your society, whereby for a segment of that society, rights become privileges. And we see it with what's happening to undocumented people around us. Then you have the infrastructure and the legal tools so that those privileges can be taken away from everyone. And let's be very clear just to c conclude that these corporate, our corporate masters uh, will stop at nothing if they feel that their profits are being impeded. And the great example of that, and I was out there, is Standing Rock. 
So here you had a nonviolent protest by water protectors to safeguard their own, not only their water, but their land. And uh, the response of the state, and this was under Obama, was incredibly violent. So over 700 arrests, the use of attack dogs, we're all talking about nonviolent protesters, sub-freezing temperatures, you're using water cannons laced with pepper spray uh, against people, constant infiltration. And this is something that I keep telling the kids who I loved in Zuccotti, they weren't quite aware of. The extent to which the state is able to monitor and infiltrate, although there were moments in Zuccotti when it was out of a Doonesbury cartoon because some guy who clearly lifted weights and was in his 30s would show up in a baseball cap and, uh, and tell everyone he was at Reed College, but he forgot his ID card. And the question was always the same after a few, a little chit-chat. He goes, so uh, who are the leaders? <laughs> I mean, the great, the power of uh, Occupy was that everything was transparent. We're not going to win this game unless we're transparent. And it gets the whole issue if somebody wants to ask about it, about nonviolence, which is the only way we're going to win this game. And so I remember one of these cops went to the head of the medical, there was a medical tent in there, and said to the woman running the medical tent, so uh, eventually came out, so who are the leaders? And she goes, uh, I am. He goes, oh, really? He goes, well, what's your title? She goes, God. (laughs) But what's not funny is that because these activists were using electronic media, but, uh, you know, digital communication, they knew who was important. And after the, under Obama, coordinated national effort, they shut down Occupy, which for me was one of the great tragedies of our time. Because if the state had responded rationally, to the very moderate demands of the Occupy movement, forgiving student debt, universal health care, a jobs program, especially targeted at people under the age of 25. It would have actually gone a long way to ameliorating the pressure, which has now only gotten worse. But unfortunately, the state did not respond rationally. And I know I'm a little over, but just let me close by talking about Trump. Trump is the symptom. He's not the disease. And I watched this same kind of political deformity and deterioration in Yugoslavia. And you can go back and look at Weimar. Eric Vogelin writes about it in the in Hitler and the Germans, where he talks about how, you know, this idea that Hitler mesmerized or hypnotized is ridiculous. What it tapped into was a kind of incohate rage and frustration and sense of betrayal because after the 1929 crash, uh, the socialist government, the Social Democrats under Ebert in Weimar imposed the same kinds of programs of austerity that were pushed on him by the bank. So they even suspended if you can believe it, unemployment insurance. People couldn't even get unemployment insurance. And the Nazis were in 28 were polling in the single digits after the crash, of course, and, and the policy of, of, of austerity. And then it gets into the whole, we can go back to Rosen Luxemburg and the Fry Corps and all that. But they people embraced these figures who were 
everybody knew they were buffoonish in the same way that everyone knows Trump is buffoonish, as the same way that everybody knew Radovan Karadovich or Slobodan Milosevic or Franjo Tuzman were buffoonish because, they, because of the anger at the system. And my fear as I watch the Democratic Party and uh, the mainstream commercial media is that they don't get it. They continue to play this reality show game. Did Russia try and interfere? In the, well, yeah, probably. But Trump is not a product of, of Russian interference. Trump is a product of grotesque social inequality. And of course, the Democratic Party doesn't want to address that issue because they are an appendage of corporate power. Yes, they're not the, they, they, they are on the spectrum of corporate power that doesn't want to be identified as a racist or xenophobe or a homophobe, but they do nothing to halt the cannibalization of corporations, nor, and, and of course, that a part of that is the wars that we are waging. It makes no sense to remain, the Taliban now controls more territory in Afghanistan they di than they did when we went in. Um, so why are we still there? Well, I mean, look at the stock prices of Raytheon, Halliburton. You know, a cruise missile costs, what, $1.1 million? Let's drop 50 of them on Libya. It's good for money. It's good for profit for, for the war industry. Uh, but it's not good for anyone over there, and it's certainly not good for us. Uh, and then I guess I'll be happy to take any, any questions anyone has. Um, and I agree with you for the most part. It's very depressing, and you didn't even mention climate change. No, I didn't. It's in the book. Um, That's the pick-me-up chapter. <laughs> but I think I'm older than you. And yes, you know, the empires have collapsed. But this happened very quickly. Um, I mean, within the scope of my lifetime. I was born in the 40s. I grew up in the 50s. And the country was on a roll. Not everyone, not not the blacks in the South. We didn't know about, well, I didn't know about it. But the people who were left had gotten through the Depression. They had gotten through the war. They had been led by Roosevelt. And we felt that progress was just inevitable. And in the 60s, because the country was doing so well, it seemed okay to open things up. The whole idea was to be more inclusive. And it all sort of began to turn in 1980. Or, in the 70s with Nixon, in 1980 with Ronald Reagan and uh, Milton Friedman, which gave you this corporate culture. But it's happened so fast that I don't see why it can't still be turned around. Okay. I mean, it's a good question. It, it, it started actually earlier because uh, it started with, I mean, you had the collapse of capitalism in the 1930s. Right. Roosevelt uh, was a product of the radical movements, the Communist right. Party. We've kind of erased the Communist Party from American history. I'm, I'm not a communist, but they, you right. know, the whole uh, the whole sit-ins that Martin Luther King used, uh, uh, you know, Ruskin was aware of this. They'd been used in the 1920s by the Communist Party, mm -hmm. which, and that's why Paul Robeson or W.E. Du Bois joined the Communist Party because even the socialists under Debs were hostile to African Americans, and so we Roosevelt astutely understood. I mean, Roosevelt said that his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism. Right. And he understood that if the private sector didn't create jobs for American citizens, given the unemployment, Good job. we better create jobs. So he created 12-minute jobs. If, if elderly people are literally starving or malnourished in their apartments, then we better create social security. 
And the corporate oligarchs made two fatal mistakes. One, they went after the radicals. In the, they, they recreated the Red Scares of the 1920s in the 1950s. Right. And Schrecker, Ellen Schrecker, has written two very fine books on this. And you forget how pervasive that purging was. And we're not talking about necessarily communists. We're talking about anybody with a social conscience. So the FBI was going into high schools with a list. This is in Schrecker's book saying him, him, her, her, out. No evidence, nothing. And they're blacklisted. The, the assault on journalism, that's how I.F. Stone ends up in his basement writing uh, I.F. Stone's Weekly. The assault on Hollywood, on entertainment. So that began to destroy the, the, the popular radical movements, which as Zinn points out, were the forces that opened up our democracy. Uh, we 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 had a we have a closed system. Every time I hear about the deification of the founding fathers, I just want to fall over. Um, um, these people were racist. Um, they supported the genocide. I mean, read what they wrote about eradicating the Indians. Washington was the wealthiest right. man in the United States. Um, they were misogynists. Uh, you know, on and on and on. And we paid for it with blood. We had the bloodiest labor wars of any industrialized country. So. They went after the radical movements, then they went after the liberal class. And I wrote a book on it called Death of the Liberal Class, where, and as Chomsky points out, I told Noam for Death of the Liberal Class, everything I learned about the liberal class, I learned from Noam Chomsky, so I should have put by Chris Edges and Noam Chomsky, except I didn't get his permission to do it. As Chomsky points out, the liberal class was never designed to be the political left. It was designed to be the safety valve, what Karl Popper writes about in The Enemies of the Open Society. It was designed to ameliorate, to adjust the system the way Roosevelt did. And so they eviscerated the liberal establishment, and then we got the great traitor of liberalism, Bill Clinton, who really sold American people down the river. Uh, and we can just tick it off. NAFTA the greatest betrayal of working men and women since the Taft-Hartley Act, deregulating the FCC so these troglodytes from Clear Channel and Fox News can consolidate control. We have what? about uh, six corporations or five control 90% of what people listen to. It's indoctrinated crap. Talk about it's fake news. I mean, real fake news. Uh, he <laughs> passes the 94 omnibus crime bill. So the prison population explodes from 700,000. He destroys Glass-Steagall. He destroys welfare. And 70% of the original recipients in the old welfare program were children. And every time I heard Hillary Clinton talk about her care concern for mothers. So, and Obama wasn't any better, but that's another story. So that, the, 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 the we, we created this, it was a gradual process. And in that process, we deindustrialized. So as Charles Mayer, the Harvard historian says, by the 1970s, we had shifted from an empire of production to an empire of consumption, meaning that we were borrowing to maintain both a lifestyle and military we could no longer afford, and now we're paying for it, and that's a long answer. Go ahead. Thank you. I agree with every word that you've spoken tonight, <clears throat> but I want to pick up with what that lady said at the very end. We must not get defeatist. We have to think that there is a way out of this, and to describe it is very important, but we have to start structuring our thought. I mean, for example, all of us are Many people are in the system. So there, excuse me, there is a leverage of people to change their minds, to change the philosophy. And I'd like you to speak a little bit about that 
because I don't want us to get so down that we really think we can't right. get out I of mean, it. I mean, this this gets to the whole issue of hope. I, you know, I come out of war. I spent 20 years covering war. I, I don't share the culture's mania for hope. I, I covered very bleak situations. I was in Sarajevo doing the war. And my job as a war correspondent was to make a very cold, rational calculation about the weapon systems around me and the possibility for destruction and then to act. And we mentioned, she mentioned climate change, which I haven't spoken about. I mean, we've known about climate change since 1902 and we've done nothing, which kind of implodes the new atheists. Chomsky calls them the religious fanatics for the state religion, um, Sam Harris, etc. It implodes this idea that we're rational human beings. And I think that, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr has... But sir, are you in such... No, let me... Are you in such despair yourself? I mean, this not as a criticism, but have you given up <laughs> but so I, much but hope? I, but I have. But but the fact is, you can't use the word hope if you don't resist. Okay. But that's I. Part. But but and so we have to we have to c carry out because the very act of resistance or rebellion, at that moment, makes you a free human being. But at the same time, it doesn't do us any good not to grasp the crisis, the, the, the mortal crisis that we face, not only as a nation, but as a species. And I think that is the great existential struggle of the moment, whereby we, we have to see reality for what it is, and then we have to resist. Okay. But most people who rebel, the great, you know, the great rebels, Toussaint, Louverture or Sitting Bull or uh, Malcolm or they they you know but in the eyes of the world they didn't succeed but in fact mm -hmm. what they did is hold up that other narrative and I would then go into my own background as a seminarian I once asked Daniel Berrigan the great radical priest and poet how he defined faith and he said Faith is the belief that the good draws to it the good, even if empirically everyone, everything around us says otherwise. And I think that if we are going to resist successfully, we are going to have to do so, and not in an orthodox way. Emma Goldman, fundamentally, I think, had a deep religious impulse. We are going to have to believe as Berrigan says, that the good draws to it the good, even if empirically everything around us gets worse. But, you know, Sartre writes about it. The utopianism of the practical, I can't remember his exact phrase. My son's here, he can tell us. But I, we are going to have to see how dire it is. And uh, look, I'm not the only one in this room who has kids. And uh, uh, even if we fail, we have to, uh, I want my kids to look back and say he tried. So, I think on the one hand, we do have to face how bleak it is. On the other hand, we can't let that despair cripple us. But I look at this, you know, this kind of inevitable human progress or technology will save us as, as foolish as the denial of global warming. Thank you. <laughs> two, yeah, two quick questions. If Trump were chances impeached, do you feel that the backlash could result in armed civil strife? And the second question is, you were on RT, and I do watch RT for time to time. I think they have some interesting programming, but I do feel a little one-sided. I was wondering, what is your experience with RT? Okay, well, in terms of Trump, 
uh, Chomsky, let's go back to Noam Chomsky, and he's, Chomsky says correctly that if we lose Trump and get Pence, it's going to be worse. Why? Because, and that's why I mentioned my book on the Christian right. Trump has no ideology. It's an ideological vacuum. He doesn't, I mean, as far as I can tell, he's in the early stages of dementia. Um, <laughs> it certainly appears that way. Uh, Ronald Reagan had it, but they covered it up a little better. What he is filling that vacuum with is the fascist ideology of the Christian right. And if, if you think it's not fascist, flick on the TV and watch Sarah Sanders, um, who lies like the day is long and then tells you what a great Christian she is. I, I, I'll come back another time and talk about the Christian right, but let me just say at its core, it's, it's about hate at its core. It's a very frightening movement. It has all the hallmarks of a totalitarian movement, and it has fused the Christian religion with the state, which the German Christian church did. As far as RT... Uh, Excuse me, uh, you didn't quite answer the question. The question was, if he's impeached, will there be civil strife? Well, yeah, but I'm saying that, one, it'll be worse, and I'm not sure that there will be civil strife because they will have Pence. Pence uh, is is a product of the Christian right. And uh, while Trump caters to the Christian right, you have to remember that they have all these institutions they built, Liberty University with its own law school and its own uh, systems of indoctrination through uh, cable channels. And so I don't think there'll be civil strife because, in fact, that Christianized fascism, which this segment of the population yearns for, will become more pronounced. In terms of RT, look, if we had a functioning public broadcasting system, critics of corporate capitalism and imperialism would have a voice. But PBS in particular is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Koch brothers. And the destruction of public broadcasting, in the 60s you could watch Baldwin, Malcolm, they were all on Zinn, Chomsky, it's vanished. And so critics such as myself are being pushed to the margins, not only of the electronic media landscape, but the internet. Now they've imposed all these algorithms in the name of fake news, of course, prop or not, thank you, the Washington Post, this anonymous site that listed us as tools of Russia, right for truth dig, but all of the sites that reprint my stuff, Common Dreams, Counterpunch, They've all been targeted and alternate. So you get what they call impressions. So before they impose the algorithms, if you typed in imperialism and, and I had written an article recently on imperialism, it would come up. Now it doesn't. Now we have we charted it in TruthDig. The impressions have fallen in the last year from over 700,000 to below 200,000 as they perfect the algorithm. Alternate traffic has fallen by 63%. World Socialist website. Then we have to add net neutrality. And the question is why? The reason is because nobody is buying this neoliberal crap, this ideology, read David Harvey's book on neoliberalism, that has just been a, a kind of ideological veneer for unadulterated greed by the 1%. What was your experience, though? Well, my experience is that they allow me allow to express these views. Remember, I covered Eastern yeah. Europe. So if you wanted to hear Václav Havel, the only place you were going to hear Havel was Voice of America. Havel didn't support American imperialism or the U.S. war, but that was the only space that he had. And uh, I'm, you know, p critics such as my gnomes completely blacked out, Nader. I mean, these people are just blacked out. And that's the goal. And and once we throw in net neutrality, on the the goal is to 
uh, create tiers on the internet so that these left-wing sites become harder and harder to access. Go ahead. So with our um, mainstream media increasingly corporatized and spewing out false narratives with no one speaking up about the fate of people like Julian Assange, yeah. with no one talking about what Edward Snowden tried to warn us about, and with Google and Yahoo sh shutting down websites and deplatforming de de controversial sources every day, how can we possibly extricate ourselves from this situation without any broad voice? So it's not like there aren't huge segments of the population that are conscious. I mean, you see the, the group here tonight. There are people who are conscious, and they know they're being lied to. Um, and I, you know, in, in the, St let's go back to the Stasi state of East Germany or the old Czech Republic, both of which I covered as, I covered the Velvet Revolution. So what was amazing was how conscious people were, even with the imposition of the iron control of information. So when the Velvet Revolution took place, everyone knew that Havel, and you know, the interesting thing about Havel, I was in the Magic Lantern Theater with him every night in Prague. <laughs> the interesting thing about Havel is that he wasn't charismatic. He wasn't a particularly good speaker, but they knew he wasn't gonna sell them out. He had the moral authority. Or, and, and I've told this story, but I'll tell it again. There, there is, you know, and fear will make people quiet, but they know. And so that whole winter, there were posters all over Prague of Jan Pollock, who had uh, a Charles University student who, to protest the 1968 Soviet invasion, had gone to Venslau Square, lit himself on fire, four days later died of his burns. His funeral was, which attracted hundreds of people, mostly students, was never broadcast by state media or covered. His grave became a shrine. They exhumed his remains, cremated his remains, gave them to his mother, said she couldn't bury them. That winter, his poster was everywhere. When the communist government fell, 10,000 people marched to Red Army Square and renamed it Jan Pollock Square. Marta Kubasheva, the great singer sang the prayer for Marta, the anthem of defiance that was broadcast on the airwaves as the Soviet tanks rolled in. After the overthrow of Dubček and the imposition of the pro-Soviet government, she, her recording stock is destroyed. She's banned from the airwaves. Between 1968 and 1989, she works at an assembly line at a toy factory. I was in Vensela Square. She walked out on the balcony. She began to sing the prayer for Marta, and every Czech in that crowd knew every word. That is the power of resistance, what Auden calls the ironic point of light that flashes out wherever the just exchange their messages. And that's why tyrants and despots are terrified of the truth, because people see it, people feel it. And there's more people out there, I mean, you're right, I mean, and they are trying to shut it down. But the, the lies are now so egregious and so transparent that you know, a marginal critic such as myself suddenly becomes a threat because that truth is a threat. And so totalitarian systems are quite effective at, and the corporate state is quite effective at controlling the message. Um, but I, I, and I just traveled all over the country for this book. I can tell you people are far more conscious. As despotic regimes deteriorate, they force resistance to create parallel systems. So I write about Anderson, Indiana, where they, these old former Catholic worker people have bought a warehouse. This is the end of the book, on, on Chapter of Freedom. And 
they are literally because their stories are not told people trapped in the gig economy they literally print they print they print it up and write it and disseminate it um i'm not saying i mean you're right to be concerned about it but that doesn't mean they're going to win so i'll have a um, broad question um 2016 was probably the first time i had been politically engaged after being in the army for some time and being deployed that's a whole another world to even explain that to people that a culture that really doesn't want the story of what happens overseas in the name of empire to be told at all that's right but where where does the left go from go from here um if i i find it to be a very sad state jill stein's name has pretty much been drugged through the mud she she can probably no longer effectively participate in the political system the democratic party as much as ocasio cortez seems like she'll bring change she still has to go up against a huge apparatus yeah. that will silence her i think yeah, where, where do right. we go where, where do we go we go to the street we look at people like Standing Rock. We look at the all of the great radical movements that were shut out of power. I mean, we've gone through vicious periods of American history. You know, people, I was, I don't know if you know James Cone, but if you don't, you should read him, Cross and the Lynching. We've just lost him. He's the most important theologian in America and one of the great moral voices of our time. But as James kept saying, you know, people will say Malcolm was so radical. Malcolm, Malcolm said what he said in Harlem. When King got up and said what he said in Montgomery, it meant that the next day walking down the street, he could be dead. And I think that we have to uncover or find again with us that kind of moral courage represented by the great figures of resistance. And we have to begin what we saw in South Africa, which brought down apartheid, which is non-cooperation. We have to do everything in our power to build alternative structures to pit power against power. And we have to do everything in our power to obstruct the workings of the corporate state. And that's what the Wobblies did. That's what the old CIO did. That's what they did in the civil rights movement. That's what the Communist Party did. That's what the Progressive Party did. We have antecedents. They erased this from American history. That's what the bonus marchers did, uh, which, of course, MacArthur went in and evicted them by force. And, you know, we have the politics is a game of fear and we have to make them frightened of us. That's our goal. That's the only way they're kept in check. So uh, there's a passage in Kissinger's memoirs, which hopefully is not being sold in this bookstore. Do not go buy it. It's 1971. Tens of thousands of anti-war protesters around the White House. Nixon has put empty city buses end to end around the White House's barricades. And he's standing at the window looking out, wringing his hands next to Kissinger, going, Henry, they're going to break through the barricades and get us. It's our job to make people in power feel fear. That's our job. And until we do that, and believe me, you know, I, so I have relatives who are on Wall Street and Zuccotti, which was absolutely did not pose any physical threat to these predators on Wall Street. They were terrified. They wouldn't even go out for lunch. They were getting they had all their private security firms tweeting or telling them every hour they're on Bond Street now. They have a, a giant puppet octopus in front of Goldman Sachs. You yeah, know, really. You know why they're so scared? Because they know even better than we do how corrupt and fixed the system is. That's why Bernanke was on his knees. And unfortunately, Obama didn't stand up for us. He stood up for the bankers. So that's it. That's the only hub. We, we haven't even talked about climate change. 
I mean, that's why Standing Rock is so important. That's why blocking the railroad tracks in the Northwest who are bringing down the pit of isn't. That's what we got to do. That's it. And I think they, they understand how hated they are. And that makes them weak. And that gets into the whole issue of violence. As the great, and we're talking about revolution, by the way. I'm talking about the overthrow of the corporate state. And for the Homeland Security person who's here, that's overthrow, O V E R. Um, <laughs> because these people are going to kill us and they're going to kill my children. And in the end, you know, these corporate forces have us, they have us by the throat. And they have my kids by the throat. And I don't know if we're going to win. I don't even know if we're going to survive as a species. But in the end, I don't fight fascism because I win. I fight fascists because they are fascists. And that moral, almost religious quality is one that we have to embrace, what Niebuhr calls sublime madness. That understanding that radical evil must be opposed, even if everything around us says that we will fail. And when we find that, and when we have the courage to stand up and defy it, we may not win in an ultimate sense, but we will be free. I mean, I teach in a prison. They imposed a rule in the prison that all the, my students had to walk past the guards down the corridors with their eyes down, and they refused. They walked down the corridors with their eyes up. It's, it sounds little, but it's not. That's what we have to do. And we have to understand that not the Democratic Party, no, but no system now, there are no institutions in this country left that are authentically democratic. There are no institutions that are going to protect us or protect our children or protect the ecosystem on which we depend for life. It's up to us. And at least let us find that courage so that whatever generation comes after us will say they were not passive and they were not complicit. As a fundamentalist, say, say on profit, I thank you, Mr. Calling. But that's why I came here tonight, was to get the answer on uh, dealing with despair. And your latest article, by the way, in Truth Tag, is about climate change. Yeah. And you go all the way to the wall, basically implying that no matter what we do, we're going to lose this battle. And I would like you to do an article in Truth Tag about what you said tonight. Because I've never heard you say all this stuff before. I have said it before. And, and I, but, but I think the point is, I mean, if we take the climate, the global warming, I mean, just a factual understanding. I mean, even if we stop all carbon emissions today, we are still going to be dealing with catastrophic effects of climate change. And of course, under the Trump administration, they're rolling back whatever tepid reforms right. they have. And we don't have any time left. And I think part of it's imperative for us to grasp how little time we have left. I mean, climate scientists are quite clear that once we get above 2% Celsius, we may get into the kinds of feedback loops that, have, that create the temperatures on Venus, which are 800 degrees. And it rains sulfuric acid. That's where we are. And, and there is no serious climate scientist that disputes that. And yet... You know, I think I talk about the mania for hope. I think if we understood the emergency that we're in, we might begin to react. But it's, of course, it fills me. I mean, my youngest son will, his favorite book is Out of the Blue. So it's like narwhals. And I'm thinking it may very well and probably will be that in your lifetime, every single one of those species doesn't exist. And I think that when we understand 
how precarious our situation is and stop fooling ourselves, we will react. And, and it goes back to that sublime madness that in the end, it, it is most revolutionaries, rebels throughout history don't succeed. But we have to, and I think that we actually overcome despair by resisting. I mean, I do. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I've been arrested in front of the White House. I've been arrested in front of Goldman Sachs. And that kind of solidarity, I was arrested with 133 vets in front of uh, the White House. And in the winter, it was snowing. And so it was Vietnam vets, Iraqi war vets, Afghan vets. And it was I, I mean, it was a religious experience. It was so moving. These people knew the horror of war, the poison of militarism. And it, when, it, when it came time to walk to the White House fence and get arrested, it's on YouTube. Somebody's beating a drum. That's it. Nobody speaks. In fact, most of the people in the crowd are crying. And when you sit home alone, when you attempt as an individual to cope with the profound despair that we all must feel, it will conquer you. But when you build relationships, and not electronically, but the way relationships can only be built, and that is person to person, when you build community, and when you carry out acts of resistance, that act of resistance is the best antidote to despair. Thank you. I realized as a progressive about two years ago that I could no longer continue to uh, kill and exploit animals for my pleasure. And I know you don't get to talk about it that much, but you inspired me to go vegan, and it's, it's changed my life completely. So I just want to say thank you. Well, let me, if you care about climate change, the animal agriculture industry, many people argue, is the greatest contributor to global warming. And you can get up tomorrow, and that's something you can do. It's also healthier. That, I mean, it was the environmental factor that pushed me to become vegan. Because whatever I do in my life, it's, it's an, it was an easy action to take. Uh, and again, it is part of that assault that we all must carry out against corporate power. Uh, and then we get into the whole issue of how they treat animals and the, and the antibiotics they pump into them and everything else. But yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I think it's an important thing that we can all do. In light of your comments about resisting, taking it to the streets, shutting it down, I know the buzzword now is we all need to choose civility. I just noticed when you, when you began, you made some comments about the uh, Antifa demonstrators and they didn't sound very positive. No. Could you sort of expand on that a bit? Well, I've written about it. Uh, I, during the Occupy movement, I wrote about the Black Bloc, and I call them the cancer of Occupy. Look, the problem with Antifa and the Black Bloc is that in the name of diversity of tactics, you know, they really only have one tactic, they serve the interests of the state. And the interests of the state is to demonize the resistance movement, uh, make people afraid of it, and uh, in infiltrate it. And I would argue that the huge percentage of these people are cops infiltrate it and get them to carry out acts of violence to justify state repression. Um, you want to know who wrote the best about an anarchist violence is Lenin. He got it. He, he understood how dangerous that was to the revolution. And look, resistance uh, is not a form of catharsis. It's a form, it's tactics, it's strategic. 
Our job is to bring them down. And as the great theorists of revolution, Crane Brinton, Jeffrey Davies, have all and others have pointed out, no revolution succeeds, and this was true in the revolutions I covered in Eastern Europe, until a significant percentage of the, the security apparatus and the civil bureaucracy defects. Because once they defect, it creates paralysis. So I was in uh, East Germany. Uh, you have demonstrations in Leipzig. Uh, Eric Honecker, the communist dictator, for 19 years, sends down an elite paratroop division, which is going to fire on the crowd. They get there. The local communist authorities block it. Honecker's out of power within a week. That's because th these people know. I mean, these, you know, I used to get in a battle about taunting the cops in Zuccotti. And I remember uh, kind of flippantly, which I shouldn't have done, saying to a group in Zuccotti, uh, the, the people who carried out the most egregious abuses in Zuccotti were the white shirts. They were the officers. Once the white shirts weren't around, the, there was a lot of almost uh, fraternization between the blue uniformed and the kids. So in this talk, I said, look, uh, you know, we only have to deal with the white shirts for a couple hours, these white shirted assholes for a couple hours a day. These cops have to deal with them all day long. So they shut down Zuccotti, and I'm giving a talk in New York. And at the end, this man comes up to me and he goes, I'm a white shirted asshole and I read all of your books. <laughs> Now, he might be the only one, but I shouldn't have said that because we will not succeed unless we bring with us substantial sections of those within the power system. And look, I think they passed Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act because ultimately the elites don't trust the police to protect them. And when we, in this two-year legal battle, we went before the, it was, Obama appealed it to the Second Circuit, the appellate, um, and of course they were stuck because it's totally unconstitutional. So they don't want to have to rule on it, and they, for months, they sit on it, sit on it, and sit on it, and I was also a plaintiff in uh, Clapper versus Amnesty International about wholesale surveillance before the Snowden revelations where government lawyers got up and said that I and the other plaintiffs were just speculating about government surveillance and then added, if the government was monitoring them, we would tell them. Okay. So they threw it out because we didn't have standing. That's the way they deny our rights. And so then the Second Circuit said, he doesn't have standing. He can't bring the case. And we filed a cert, but during that whole, to the Supreme Court, and they wouldn't take it. But during that two-year battle, we went to the Democratic leadership. We went to Pelosi, the lawyers. We said, look, they pass Section 1021 every year. All you have to do is pass it and say it doesn't apply to U.S. citizens, and we drop the lawsuit. But of course they weren't going to put because it does apply to U.S. citizens. So Antifa plays into what they want, which is a militarized states. And as I tell, look, I was overseas. Somebody that asked a question was overseas. He'll second me. Uh, having been around s special forces, we have 60,000 of them. They're called death squads. The state has the capacity to inflict levels of violence that we can't even begin to imagine. Um, and that's just a route that is utterly self-destructive. And so I have been quite uh, vocal in my attacks against Antifa and the Black Bloc because I see them as counterproductive to what we're trying to accomplish. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. 
For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.